Tiffany Huff Struthers is a wife, mother, and a woman of faith. She's been called to minister and mentor women and is passionate about helping women reinvent themselves following their worst setbacks to make major impact. She lives out her calling as an evangelist or winning author, sought-after speaker, coach, and domestic violence survivor and advocate. Tiffany recognized her gift to uplift at a very early age, as her family became the billboard example for the epidemics plaguing the Black community. From drug abuse and single parenthood to gangs, poverty, and divorce, Nonetheless, Tiffany became the first in her family to graduate college and receive numerous scholarships, including one from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to attend graduate school. In the midst of her graduate study, she found herself in a relationship she had no idea how to end. And seemingly, she went from working hard and being a mother and student to being heartbroken and homeless after being shot by her first love. Refusing to accept her worst setback as defeat, she began a journey of reinvention and has become the go-to for other women on the journey to becoming the same. Tiffany's resilience and resourcefulness is known to be a catalyst for changing lives after every single encounter. She is the founder and director of When She Thrives, a nonprofit with the mission to break generational cycles of single motherhood. And she has such a powerful testimony. We touched on it just briefly right now, but I can't wait for you to hear directly from her, her story. Uh, Hello, I'm Tiffany Huff Struthers, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to share with you today. Um, And so I'd like to say, you know, I have this, this story, right? And it is the pain that led to my purpose, but I kind of want to give you the background of how I even got into the pain, if that makes sense. So from the time that I was a little girl, um, I was very smart, you know, Um, I was in scholars classes, gifted classes. They wanted to, they wanted me to skip grades, but my dad was not having that. Um, But I was very smart. And so I was the one in my family who was the one. Um, My sister had been very similar to me, my older sister, um, but she got pregnant as a teenager. And then my brother, also very smart, but um, ended up into the gangs with the 90s and going in and out of jail. So our family was really like the billboard for epidemics in the Black community. My dad ended up on drugs. My parents got divorced. My mom had mental health issues. And then there was me. All I wanted to do was read books and get good grades in school. And um, so my parents, whether they were together or apart, always always told me that I could do and be anything that I wanted to, right? And I know that um, we still want to encourage our children and each other in that way, but I want you to hear my heart when I say that can be detrimental. So um, that rang true in my life. You know, my mom would say, if you get good grades, you'll get a scholarship. That happened. Um, I got scholarships. And then, you know, if you work hard in college, you'll get good jobs. And that happened. And I got what other people would have believed were good jobs, right? Um, But for all of that time, I was dealing with this um, unspoken burden of carrying the weight of my family on my shoulders because I was the one. I was the one who was supposed to make it. And I was supposed to do it the way that they 
fill in the blank with whomever they is, the way that they expected it to be, the way they expected success to look. And that was even at the expense of my truest self. So um, in the midst of all of this, I got into a relationship um, towards the end of high school and was in this relationship ultimately for about a, a, about a decade. Um, I grew up in this relationship and this relationship is where the pain actually started. Um, you know, we were in high school. We didn't go to the same high school, but we were in high school together. So we were, you know, that high school sweetheart thing. And, and we were in love. Uh, we were definitely in love, but um, we had challenges. And a lot of our challenges came from his insecurity because of how I was flourishing, because of how I was growing, because of how quote unquote successful I was being, it made him insecure about whether or not um, we would stay together because we were not on the same paths. Um, he was like the bad boy and I was the good girl, right? And the, the challenge though, was that even though there were, <laughs> there were signs very early on that this was not going to be the relationship for me, I still was holding on to that seed that was planted so long ago in my youth that I could be successful at anything. And if I worked hard enough, I can make anything work, you know? And I didn't realize until many years later after everything I'd gone through in this relationship that that is what kept me longer than anything. There was nothing I had set out to do that I was not successful at. I mean, I get chills just thinking about it now. And so, um, like I said, we started dating probably the summer before senior year. Yes, the summer before senior year. And it was great. Um, we didn't go to the prom together. I went to the prom with one of my best friends. Um, but, you know, that summer we were like white on rice. Um, and everything was everything was fine up until the point where it was time for me to leave to go away to school. Um, and once I left, things got kind of rocky. <laughs> and then while I was at school, things were rocky at the university I was at. So I went to Lincoln University for a semester. And during my first semester, and I don't know if you know anything about HBCUs or Lincoln, but when I went to Lincoln, they were in the midst of like a financial crisis because there was some issues with the administration, there was some embezzlement, and so it was just a hot mess. Like, people couldn't get books, there was no toilet paper in the dorms, it was rough. So I decided after the first semester that I was going to transfer out, and one of the scholarships that I received, um, because I had so many scholarships, one of the scholarships that I had received, the director of the program became a mentor for me. And he talked me into coming back home to Pittsburgh because I was like, well, I'll just pick another HBCU and go there. He encouraged me to come back home to Pittsburgh. And because of all of the scholarship money I had, he told me that if I needed to get an apartment, I could use my scholarship funding for that because my home life wasn't very stable at that time either. Um, so I came home and um, we, were, we were able to quote unquote, get the relationship back on track. And that semester, I was able to get my own apartment, which he moved into with me. And very shortly thereafter, things progressively got out of hand. <laughs> and, you know, it's 
just talking through this out loud is very interesting because for as smart as I was and as successful as I was and as long as I spent watching Lifetime movies, I just, I could not, or I was not willing to accept that I could not make this thing work. I was willing to give everything. And in fact, I almost did give everything. So, um, by the time we had about six or seven years in, I'm done with, with college. I'm into graduate school. I got pregnant. And then about a year and a half later, well, about a year and a half later, almost, we had another baby. So we're two kids in at this point, And the relationship is very tumultuous, abuse in all forms, physical, mental, emotional, you name it. Um, I had become very isolated because I was ashamed, you know, like I said, I was successful in everything else. And this was like the black spot on the resume of my life. And so I didn't want people to see it. I didn't want people to know it. I wanted to fix it. And I wanted to be successful because we had two beautiful kids and we looked so great in our family portraits, but everything was a mess. And finally, um, <laughs> one Christmas. In fact, my, my older son's first Christmas, um, things got really bad. And one day he left and I literally um, moved the house while he was gone. Like I'm talking about the Christmas tree still had bulbs on it. I did not take any decorations off the tree or anything. I literally moved while he was out. And um I, I was able to stay secluded for quite some time. It was obviously a very challenging thing because it was, like I said, our son's first Christmas. So I did still take my son to see, you know, his grandparents and the family. So we did have some interaction, um, but he didn't end up seeing his dad for Christmas, which was hard. And so way after the fact, well, not way after the fact, just before New Year's, he called me and he really wanted to see the baby. And I'm like, okay, but I didn't want him to know where I moved to. So we went to um, a hotel so you can see the baby. One thing led to another. That's when I got pregnant with my second son. And so um, hopefully this is a judgment-free zone. And so um, again, we end up back together trying to make it work, trying to do what's right for the kids. And of course, um, the, the same thing started to arise again and the cycles of abuse came back. And so finally, um, we split once and for all. I moved again, probably probably a year or so later. And at this point, well, pro let me back up. By the time um, I'd had the, my second son, things were completely out of hand. Um, and so by the time I moved, it was very tumultuous. I had to go and get a PFA paper on him because he was like showing up at my house. He was stalking me. He was calling me all times of the night, like to the extent that I had to like turn all ringers off. And um, it, it was just crazy. It was just a lifetime, a lifetime movie turned real, like several times this summer before um, everything ended with a bang. Like I literally would have to be escorted by the police out of my neighborhood um, to towards the direction of my sister's house because he would be at my house. He would be harassing me and threatening me and I just didn't feel safe at home. And finally, 
in July of that year, I stayed with a friend for the whole month of July. That's how afraid I was to be at home alone. Um, and then after he realized that I wasn't home, even though he didn't know where I was, he kind of lightened up for a little bit. And I had been there for a month and I'm just like, I want to go home, you know, like I want to be in my own space. So I went home um, at the very end of July and the first weekend in August, um, he broke into my home. So I should back up a little bit. A um, couple weeks before he broke into my home, he climbed through the window at my house. <laughs> and and let me tell you, he was a big guy. Like I'm talking 6'4", over 300 pounds. Like he was a big guy. To this day, I do not know how he made it through that window, but you know what? Determination. When you have determination, you can do anything. So he climbed through the window. And in fact, he really just wanted to talk to me. Um, so we did talk and he ended up leaving without incident, but I had a slum landlord and he didn't come fix my window. It wouldn't lock. So I jimmied it with a board so that he couldn't lift it. So this next time, this you know, this next time when he came, he, I think, again, attempted to climb in the window. And when he realized it was Jimmy shut, he was still determined to get in. So he literally shot through a window, put his hand through the glass to unlock the door and came into my home. Now on this particular night, I had my two children my oldest son was about a little more than two. My younger son was just shy of his first birthday. And I had my niece, who was five, and my nephew, who was also about two. He and my son are the same age. And um, so I heard a noise, but I had a window unit air conditioner. And so I thought that one of the kids fell out of the bed. So I opened my bedroom door and I could hear him walking on the glass that he shattered. And I didn't even, I didn't even consider that someone had like broken into my house, like it was a robbery or anything. I knew immediately it was him. And so I called out his name and probably before I could get his name all the way out of my mouth, I saw him coming up the steps with a gun. And um, my bedroom was like right at the top of the steps. So he got to the top of the steps. Again, this is a big guy. Like he flew up those steps. Like I'm telling you this, this day, this night he had, in this season, he had superhuman strength because he was not athletic by any means. He was a big guy, but he ran up the, those steps so quickly. Like I had no time to react. And he just kind of like shoved me into my bedroom and this gun is like right at the ridge of my nose. And I'm just like in shock probably um, for at least two or three minutes, which is a long time when you're in a situation like that. I don't have any clothes on because I'm, you know, in my home sleep. It's it's August. And he backs me into the room. He's screaming. He's yelling. He's smacking me. And I don't even know how long this went on, but he had like backed me onto the edge of my bed and I was sitting there. And when someone tells you that their life flash before their eyes, it's not a lie. Like I literally sat on the edge of that bed and my life was flashing before my eyes. I could see like myself in the hospital breastfeeding my son. 
I could see like my children taking a picture at daycare. I could see like my high school graduation. I could see very clearly this picture of my father and I on our, on my grandmother's porch and me like kissing his cheek. Like these things were so vivid in my mind and I was so afraid and I got very, very nervous. And I felt like I was going to go to the bathroom on myself. This in the midst of, like I said, him smacking me and screaming and hollering and me thinking about these four babies that are in the room next to us and me trying to say, you know, like our kids are here. There are kids here. Like you don't have to do this. And so I got nervous and I said, I'm going to have an accident. Like I really need to go to the bathroom. So he, um, he let me get up and he was like walking me. He was like following me to the bathroom mind you this gun has not moved from the ridge of my nose so we're walking towards the bathroom and he like got upset all over again and he like like pushed me against the wall at which point he and I are now eye to eye because when we were on the bed I was basically just eye to eye with the barrel of that gun I wasn't necessarily looking at him but when he pushed me against the wall I was able to look in his eyes and I could see he was definitely drunk he may have been high off of something and I was just staring at that gun and I'm like if I don't do something he is going to kill me and all I could really think about was my babies like I can't die I have these babies I have to live for my babies and so um I grabbed the gun I grabbed the gun from the barrel and we kind of got into a tug of war and then I had the gun in my hands and just like this stupid woman on lifetime i stood there with the gun in my hands um and i think because in the moment i realized in a very not even in the moment in like a matter of seconds it it became crystal clear that if i turned the gun around and and shot i would shoot him in the chest and likely kill him and i just so while i was trying to process all of that right in that 30 40 seconds he snatched the gun back and when he snatched it back he pulled it from the trigger and it went off and all I could see was lights I don't know I feel like time stood still and there was like this big spark almost like a, a fire and then after time went back to normal I was on the floor and my leg was just moving uncontrollably at which point I realized I had been shot and so, of course, we're both in panic mode. And what I can say is after, after that, he was no longer hired or drunk. He was sober immediately. And I was just like dumbfounded. I couldn't believe that I was laying on the floor. And if you can imagine like when a fish comes out of water and how it just flops on the ground uncontrollably, that's what my leg was doing. And so on top of the fact that I was panic about, panicking about my babies, panicking about my niece and nephew, panicking about what he was going to do next. I was thinking like, they're going to cut my leg off. I'm going to have one leg. How am I going to take care of my babies? Like I was just in a state of panic. And so I started begging him to give me the phone. Because like I said, I would turn my cell phone off and turn the ringer on my phones off because he would call incessantly. And so the phones were up on my dresser and I had this really big oversized wooden furniture at the time. And once my legs started, or once my legs stopped moving, it swelled up 
like I had elephantitis and it was very heavy. So I could not even drag myself to the point where I could reach up on the dresser and get the phone. So I had to beg him to let me have the phone. And of course, he's still screaming and hollering. And he says, you know what, like at this point, I'm, I'm going to jail. I might as well kill you and kill myself. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't even know what it was that I said specifically. Um, but I convinced him, I said, you know what, if you give me the phone and leave, I will just say someone broke in here. Like they won't even know you were here. Just give me the phone and leave. So finally, he gave me the phone and he left, trying to get myself together. The friend who I had stayed with for the month didn't even live a mile away from me. So I called her first to tell her like she needed to come get the kids. And then um, when I tried to call 911, he was calling me. So when I would like pick up the phone, I didn't hear a deadline because he was calling and saying like, look what you made me do. I can't believe this happened. And I'm like, bruh. Like, I need to call 911. I'm shot over here. Like, so finally, I get the police on the phone. I call my sister and she comes. And um, so, yeah. So, long story short, I end up in the hospital for um, almost two weeks. Um, I now have a metal rod in my leg because the bullet shattered my femur. I had to be on a walker for a very extended period of time. I was on crutches for, well, I was supposed to be on crutches for six to nine months, but I actually had to quit my crutches early because um, wintertime in Pittsburgh is not a game. I was afraid that I would slip on ice and also because I had a baby and I could not walk on crutches and hold my baby's hand. So I just had to thug it out. Um, but before, so once I got out of the hospital though, I started to have PTSD and it was because we were had been in this relationship so long, there was nowhere that I could go and feel safe because he knew everybody. He knew where everybody lived and he was on the run, I should add. He didn't get arrested that night. So he was still out in these streets for about a month before he turned himself in. So um, I couldn't sleep. I didn't feel safe. And um initially I was at my sister's because I had to have a, a home nurse coming it was it was just honestly I, as I tell this story I feel like I'm telling someone else's story it's almost like I've lived another life um so finally I made the decision to go into a shelter because um I didn't have a home, you know, I couldn't go back to my house after what happened. I just couldn't be in that space. I wasn't able to work because of my condition. So I didn't have the income to support me just up and moving. And so ultimately my children and I were homeless. So I went into an emergency um, 30 day shelter. And then um, once I left there, I was able to um, get a place with my dad. And so that's kind of the, the pain <laughs> in a nutshell. And so after everything happened, once I got off the crutches and was able to kind of function for what that's worth, I decided that I needed a change because I started looking for jobs and I felt, I felt like 
people knew who I was. I felt like they saw me on the news or they read the article in the newspaper. And I just felt like the stigma was attached to me because I had skills and I had education, but I could not get a job. So I decided that I needed to change. And my dad agreed, excuse me, I have family in Atlanta and I have family in North Carolina. So my dad's like, why don't you go take some time, get a fresh start. And I decided that um, Winston-Salem, North Carolina was a much better place for me to transition with two young children than Atlanta would have been. So I went to North Carolina and I lived there for two years. And while I was there um, recovering, I always say I went to rehab. (laughs) Um, While I was there recovering, God met me there. Um, And I I should say that, I always had a relationship with God, right? But you know how they say like your grandmother's prayers cover you. My father's prayers cover me. My dad taught me the Bible. He quoted scripture to me. He would pray with me and he always knew there was something that God, something special that God had for me, right? So I always believed in God. I always had a yearning for God. I would ask my dad to like have Bible study. My brother would be like punching me and kicking me under the table because <laughs> he didn't want to. But when I got to North Carolina and it was just me and God and God and me, God met me there. Um, and it, and it, was, <laughs> it was eerie because I would, when I got there, Um, I went looking for the church that I went to in Pittsburgh, right? So there was a very um, similar church next to where I was staying with my uncle. And, you know, I just went where where I knew, Baptist church. Um, And one of the associate pastors was a client actually at the bank where I worked. And she came into the bank one day and she said, I want you to come to this Bible study with me. I think you'll like it. So I was like, okay, you know, I didn't really know anybody. Anybody that I met was either through church or like mommy, mommy time at the library where I took my kids because I didn't know anyone and I was being very cautious. And so I went to this Bible study and when I got to the church, I was like, whoa, it was like a a campus. It was like a building for the youth ministry and like a school on the church grounds. And I was just like, okay. Like it was one of those churches that I was used to seeing on TV. When I walked in, (laughs) when I walked in, there was like a foyer and there was a cafe. And I was just like, what is this? You know, I'd never seen anything like it. And I kid you not, like, you know how you see on cartoons or like touched by an angel where like (laughs) the the light rains down and the angels are like, I literally had a moment like that while I stood in this church. It was surreal. And so I went to the Bible study and the women were really nice and they encouraged me to visit the church. So I visited the church and the pastor was white. And I was like, this is different. You know, nothing I'd ever experienced before. Um, but I couldn't stop going to that church. Like there was something there that just drew me. And so I continued to go to that church. Um, and at that church uh, is when I really had my first personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. My first real personal experience, like hearing God. Um, 
I spoke in tongues once at this church. Like I, I mean, the, the time that I spent though very brief in that space was transformative. So, um, in the midst of all of this, we were finally going through court proceedings. Um, and then I got a job while I was in North Carolina and he was going to court in the midst of my probationary period. And I was subpoenaed and I was like, I'm not doing this. Like I'm moving on with my life. If I come back, I'm going to lose my job because I can't miss any days. And so I just didn't go. So ultimately he ended up getting out of jail. Um, but again, I was moving on with my life, right? So he was there, I was there, we had distance between us. Um, and we had gotten to the point where we could be cordial. So it was fine. Um, and I should say from the moment that I got in that hospital, I remember trying to hate him. I remember willing myself to hate him and I could not do it. I hated what he did to me. I hated the decisions that he made, but I just could not bring myself to hate him. Um, and, you know, in, in, in all of the hell that we went through, like I literally came into adulthood with him. Like we grew up together and it was not the best experience, but it wasn't always bad. And I guess, um, <laughs> that coupled with the way that God works within me just wouldn't allow me to hate him. So he got out of jail. <laughs> Oddly enough, he got out of jail in May, March of the next year, he was murdered. So then I found myself in a space of feeling guilty because had I gone to court, he would have been in prison and maybe he wouldn't have been murdered. And, and even with all that went on, this is still the father of my children, right? So I had to, I had to deal with that. And so did my children. So about a year or so after he passed away, we moved back to Pittsburgh because I felt like my children needed to be close to family. And I also felt like I could have peace um, at home because he was no longer there. And so fast forward 10 years, <laughs> um, I had always, since I was a little girl, one of my greatest gifts and one of the things that I love most, like I mentioned, I was always reading. I always wanted to write a book. And um, I had convinced myself that the reason I hadn't wrote, written the book or any books to that point was because I had so many ideas that I couldn't decide which one to write first. Um, but God had made it expressly clear that I was supposed to write about this experience. And I should say that while I was in the shelter, one of the things that I did was I had this yellow legal pad and I was letting all of the women in there um, pick their aliases. And I was telling them like, I'm going to write a book about this because I could not believe the experience that I was having, having. And so once I got back to Pittsburgh, there was one girl who had been in the shelter with me. I would see her every few years. And she would say, how's the book? Like, when's the book coming out? And I would be like, oh, I'm working on it. I ain't wrote a word. I ain't wrote a word. And then I saw her um, once um, in 2000, 
16 and she again she's like you know how's the book and um <laughs> my husband was with me she's like you know I'm gonna be in her book right and he's like okay but that time something was different the next day when I woke up I could not shake that interaction that I'd had with her the night before and I and I woke up the day after that I saw her on a Saturday night that Sunday I spent the entire day just like shaken by our interaction interaction that Monday I woke up and within 30 days I had written that book every day I woke up 30 days straight and wrote that book and it was it was both a healing um and challenging journey because i had to relive so much of what had gone on i can't even believe i've made it through this without crying um but so that that's how the pain informed my purpose because it's almost as if like my lifelong dream came true as a result of what i endured and <clears throat> excuse me, since then, you know, the work that I do is all around helping other women do the same thing, you know, helping them recover from that setback or that challenge or that thing that they felt like was the worst thing in the world that they could never come back from and really understanding that God is calling us to use and share our stories to rebuild not only ourselves but others um when i was in north carolina in one of the bible studies that i um participated in the focus scriptures came from isaiah 61 and the woman who was leading the study gave all of us this magnet with the verses isaiah 61 1 through 4 on them and um just before i had written my book i was going through some struggles um, more than anything financial and i remember coming home from a small group and just being livid and saying like god why is all of this happening and i opened up the book for that small group study that i was in at the time and bam, right there, those same scriptures, Isaiah 61, one through four. And I won't read those scriptures to you, but ultimately those scriptures are the foundation for the work that I do. And also, you know, they'll encourage you if you don't understand um, what God is going to do with whatever he's growing you through. And so I'm gonna give you the Tiff's Notes version of those scriptures and ultimately is it it is a proclamation that the spirit of god is upon you he's anointed you to do something specific and there's a list of things that he's anointed you to do you know set free the prisoners um give a garment of uh, a joy for those who are mourning you know beauty for ashes is that scripture and i recognized in that moment when i was questioning why i was going through so much after all that i had already endured and you know god spoke to me he said 
how would you be able to serve anybody else? How can you set a prisoner free if you've never been imprisoned? How will you be able to speak to someone who doesn't have any money if you've never experienced feeling like you don't have money? How will you be able to, and you fill in the blank, because I, I wholly believe that the same is true for you. And so it's allowed me to position myself in a space where I have a different perspective when I'm going through something. I recognize that I'm growing through, not just going through. And it's also allowed me to shift the question. A lot of times, if we're willing to be honest, we do question why, right? We want to ask God why, even though we're not quote unquote supposed to. But through my experiences, what I've learned is the real question is what? God, what is it that I'm supposed to learn from this? What is it that you want me to do with this? What is it that you're going to use me for as a result of this? And it takes a while to get there, especially when you are in the midst of it. But when you are able to shift your perspective and ask what, then you've given yourself the space to understand that there is a purpose in whatever you're enduring. And so that's 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 my journey in as as brief as i can um share it and i hope that if nothing else you know if nothing else what i want you to understand and take away from it is you know don't doubt your doubt um doubt your doubts right that's number one but also i really want you to consider um, and know the difference between your source and a resource. Because God is your source, right? And he gives us people and he gives us, you know, money and he gives us gifts that are resources. But if you're not correct, connected to your source, then those resources will be misused, misconstrued, and really have um, negative repercussions. And, and, you know, at the time when I was young, my mom, my parents, they were my source, right? And because of that, what they told me was the law. Like, you can do anything, you can be anything. And I'm not saying that it's their fault that I chose to be in this relationship, but I really want you to consider the information that you accept as law. Um, what I now refer to as true lies, right? They're lies that you've taken on as your truth because of who you subscribe to as your source. Um, but I know now that God is my source. And so I have to qualify everything I think I know by what I believe, as opposed to in the past, I was qualifying everything I believe by what I thought I knew. Hopefully you caught that because it's so important that you know, you use the right lens to evaluate things and experiences and people. And if you are going through or growing through something, I just pray that you would trust God in the midst, that you would look to God as your source, you know, because even those who love you don't know you the way God does, right? Even those who love you don't necessarily see the you that God sees. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, when I started to make the shift, when I started to really surrender and do the things that God would have me do, everybody 
questioned it. It was, it was a challenge for people to support it because it wasn't, it wasn't the TIFF they knew, right? It wasn't the one who was living for everyone else and they were challenged by that. And I've learned that you have to have the foresight to forgive people because when you step into who God has really called you to be, when you step into, when you step out of the pain, I should say, and into purpose, when you get fully aligned, you will recognize that people have faith until they have to have faith. And if this journey hasn't taught me anything else, it's taught me that. And so I know now that I have to seriously cling to Matthew 6 33 and that is seek first the kingdom because otherwise you will end up in a world of trouble so I just I you know I just want to encourage you and especially if you're listening to this and you're excuse me and what you think I'm saying is just pray about it that's not what I'm saying I want to encourage you to go to God before you go to people. That does not mean that you aren't going to be required to take action. Like I said, I packed up a minivan with two children under the age of three and moved to another state. God met me there. So you are going to have to take action, but you're going to have to seek God first. Don't let other people tell you what you should do or what you need to be doing. And when you are seeking God first, you will be able to discern wise counsel from people who just have opinions. So hopefully, you know, you're encouraged by what I shared. Um, Because even if you weren't shy, even if you're not in an abusive relationship, you know, there are mountains that we have to climb. And I'll leave you with this. I don't know how long I've been talking, but I'll leave you with this. There is a scripture, um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, that says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain, right? And I think that that scripture could be, could have been used to justify why I stayed in that relationship, right? I had faith. I believed he would change, you know? I thought he was the love of my life, but the reality is it says you have the faith to move a mountain. It doesn't say that every mountain would move. Some mountains are supposed to move you. So if you have the faith to move a mountain, you also at some times are going to need the faith to climb the mountain, no matter how steep, no matter how big, and know that just like your faith can move that mountain, your faith will strengthen you to climb that mountain to get to the point that God has specifically for you. So God bless you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the opportunity to share. And um, I hope you were blessed by what I shared. I hope you are blessed by what she shared as well. Make sure you stay connected with Tiffany. I will link all of her social media and website and everything in the show notes. If this message was helpful for you, make sure you reach out to her, send her a DM. It means more than you think. And I would love for you guys to leave us a review if this Pain and Purpose podcast is helping you to really shift your perspective on some of the things that you've been through. I love you guys. I hope we'll talk soon. I'll chat with you. Uh, If not before then, I'll chat with you next. 
next week. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at Pain and Purpose Podcast and have a good rest of your week.